Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. <laughs> Welcome to World of Wealth, the podcast from Spears Magazine, with me, Edwin Smith. On the show, I speak to entrepreneurs, high net worth individuals, and their most trusted advisors to discover how the world of wealth really works. My guest for this episode is a jewellery designer and a businessman, whose clients include the likes of Elton John, Lady Gaga, and a Rolling Stone. We spoke about the way he stumbled into his craft before going on to establish a global reputation. For much of this time, though, he was not in control of the company that bears his name. He talked candidly about how difficult it was to watch from the sidelines as the suits had their way with it. He also explained why the most important piece of advice he can offer fellow entrepreneurs with a creative streak is this. Never, under any circumstances, sell your name. Theo Vanell, hello, and welcome to the show. Now, it's a, it's an excellent time to be talking because the 40-year-old business that carries your name was until recently in the hands of private equity. But as we sit here towards the end of the summer in 2021, you recently acquired a controlling stake. And I hope we can talk about that in quite a bit of detail later. But I wanted to start at the beginning. You were born in Egypt, the son of Alistair and Beryl. Alistair was a major in the British Army, and so I suspect you may not have spent long in Egypt, but, but do you remember growing up there? Do you remember that time? No, I don't remember Egypt really at all. The first thing I really remember was, I guess, Pakistan. My father was at Quetta, the staff college there, and I remember that because I had a Pakistani ayah who was the first really sweet person I ever met. A lot of people my age from that sort of upbringing found that the affection was, was normally coming from em- employees rather than direct members of the family and she was with us quite a long time so uh, she had a great effect on me terrific and then after that I remember Germany for a bit which I suppose was quite a shambly and sad place in those days because it wasn't that long after 10 or 12 years after the end of the war and it was still pretty much in ruins and then out to 
Malaya, Malaysia as is. So it was a, it was a fairly peripatetic sort of upbringing. And you went to school in England at Eton. What was the school like when, when you were there? Well, I, I was sent for first when I was five. I was sent to boarding school for reasons. I assumed I'd done something desperately wrong, but it turned out to be for my own good, as they always say. So for a long time, I sort of spent my, my holidays with various aunts and uncles and mainly aunts, mainly very, very old great aunts who were still to this day, I think of as terrifying and eccentric and, and odd. He used to feed me beer when I was eight or nine and things. But then it was later when my parents came back to live in England that I went to school and, and yes, it was a strange place. I still don't know many years on whether I, if somebody said, did you enjoy it or not? I probably couldn't answer that question. What I do know is that it was a fantastic education full of, of extremely nice people and very unusual, as it were. I mean, they, they were, on the whole, very straightforward, mainly jolly, not particularly intelligent, although some were very intelligent. You know, the scholars and things were highly intelligent, and the rest were just sort of normal boys, vicars, sons, and nothing particularly stratospheric. I think very unlike now, where I think it's a much more channeled, much more tunnel vision place, where there is a will to succeed. I mean, I can't remember anybody ever, in the whole time I was there, mentioning money or the need to have it or the need to to make it. I grew up without the knowledge or the need to make money <laughs> at all, without realising I needed to. And that, that brings us on to art college, I suppose. <laughs> First in York, I think, and then in London. I wonder if at that stage of your life you'd already decided that that jewellery was for you, that being a jeweller was what you wanted to do. No, not at all. I mean, I mean nothing was further from my mind. I don't think at that stage I even knew that there was such a thing as a jewellery designer. I think probably then in the late 60s, early 70s, if you put jewellery designer in your passport, you would have been denied access anyway. It didn't really exist as a thing. Now, my, I think it had always been mapped out that I'd go into the army, as my father and, and grandfather would ever had before me. But my father was the person that said, you know, it's simply not worth going into now. Things have changed to such an extent you know, there isn't the world to see and all that sort of stuff. And bizarrely, in those days, if you were going to go into what was considered a decent regiment, it still cost money. And he had none. So he said, what would you like to do? And there was sort of talk about doing something incredibly effective, like fine art and moral sciences at Cambridge, something that really does equip you for the world. And in the end, I said, I'd love to go to art school, not really knowing why, other than all my favourite sort of bands and, and the, the things that I enjoyed the most at the time seemed to have gone to art school and then decided what they were going to do then. And, and the idea of, of three or four years doing something not very taxing while I made up my mind what I wanted to do seemed, seemed attractive. I was a sort of early forerunner of the modern, the modern way. But then after art school, you did, I think your first job was as an apprentice jeweller in, in Hatton Garden. So was it, by the time you left, had you developed that, that hope or did you, did you merely end up there? No, I, I hadn't at all. I mean, the, the, the four years were incredibly enjoyable, but, but deeply unproductive. I mean, I hung about. I, I really did nothing, to be honest, except a lifelong appreciation of painting and the, the skill of people who do it well and of pictures and of photography and all the things that in those days art school taught you because you, know, you, you were allowed to do a bit of 
photography, a bit of etching, a bit of this, a bit of that. So you really did learn an awful lot apart from the else, but also it, it did kind of open up your, your attitude to various things. And But when I left, I had no real idea of what I was going to do other than that to do something because I, I literally had no money and, and things weren't quite as easy in those days for somebody who literally had nothing. I remember coming back from the interview in which I had been offered this job, thinking I'm about to join workers. I'm going to actually earn enough money to pay for my tube fare and my flat and those things. I find it absolutely astonishingly depressing, the whole idea. But I, I had passed the interview or, or been offered a job at the end of the interview, to my amazement. And I'd been sent there by my, my great aunt Mary, a, a terrifying and intimidating woman who had been discussing me every breakfast and saying, you know, we've got to do something about Theo. He's, otherwise he's going to perish. I th thought she thought I was going to literally wither on the vine and be sort of hospitalized with inertia. But she found this thing in Lady Magazine, an advertisement for someone to work in, in a silversmith's. And as I'd said, I wanted to do something creative and the only options otherwise were sort of the city or something dreadful in banking or whatever. I got offered the job and I took it. You must have liked it. Given where you are, given where you are today, or did it grow slowly? It, it was it was odd because it was an incredibly Dickensian place. I mean, I really thought it was a joke when I first saw it. It was like a sort of film set for Little Dorrit or something. It was you know, all the the desks were sort of chin high, and one sat on these really tall seats, and still wrote with a dip pen. And my first job was just filling in the ledgers, these big leather ledgers, with every bit of repair that came in. So I sort of write one bruised, bruised always rather than dented, one bruised silver cup, circa 1835, made by whatever bruises removed and polished, that sort of thing, for hours on end. And it was only when I started to look at the, the pieces of silver that I realised just how beautiful they were and how much sort of heft they had. So we got things like the Whiteman Cup, you know, the, the Tennis Cup, and we got the FA Cup, and we, we, all these things started to appear with names on them that sort of resonated, and I was always sort of a big sports fan and enjoyed sports in every way. And so when things like, you know, the, the, the sort of Wimbledon Cups arrived and the sort of the Open Trophy, Golf Trophy arrived, seeing those names on them was incredibly moving. And so I thought, you know, this is an interesting thing, and I thought, I wonder how they make these things. I had no idea, as most people don't, how what came out of the ground as a lump of silver sort of was turned into. And about a week or two, no, a month or two, I guess along the line, I was sent down to the workshops, which were down this sort of corridor, past the Green Bay's door, into this huge room, noise and crashing and banging, with a whole lot of very jolly-looking people, sort of Santa's elves, but sort of grown up, bashing silver and things. And you could see sort of just from the room the kind of journey that a lump of silver went on to end up as this gleaming, fantastic thing. And what appealed to me was, was, was just the kind of jolliness of everybody. I mean, they, they were all equal. Nobody was sort of anybody, you know, other than an apprentice and a master. They were all working with each other to the end of one brilliant thing. And I later noticed, I, I, I met Eric the artist who was upstairs. Nobody was thought of as the designer or the name or the whatever, there were no such things as brands or what have you. And all those sort of Edward Barnards was after the great silversmith, after the man himself. As in Deba, all those great names, they were after actual craftsmen, as Fabergé was, for instance. 
not after sort of, you know, Goldman and Sachs or whatever. They were actually after the people who really made the things rather than retail them, whatever. So it was very much a sort of communality of spirit and of, of skill. It was wonderful. I loved it. And then you left that environment and went, I think, in 1982, certainly the early 80s, to set up on your own in a studio on the Fulham Road, from what I understand. You're still in that part of town. Why did you choose that part of London? Lethargy. Mainly, I lived, I lived up the road, and it just seemed going to Hatton Garden every morning, which is where I went after Barnard's. I left assuming that business looked terribly easy, and they just stood there, and people appeared at the door. And it hadn't occurred to me that they'd been there for three hundred years, and people had sort of learnt where they were. So I started off my own, really just taking any old job I could, with a little workshop in Hatton Garden, and every day I would make the journey to Hatton Garden, which was which was quite a, a big one from where I was in at the end of the Fulham Road. Also, people were, were loath to come the whole way to Hatton Garden. A few did, and they remember it well. People from, you know, 40 years ago plus used to come along there, and it was very basic <laughs> indeed, very basic. It just became untenable to go there every day and then in the evenings go around showing people the stuff that I was halfway through and trying to sort of type for business. And also it meant that everyone I went to I had a drink in every place. It would say by the time I got home, I was normally rat-like and carrying lots of jewellery. You're known, well, since sometimes when stories are written about you in the newspapers, you're described as the king of bling. But how would you describe your, your aesthetic yourself? The king of bling is probably, <laughs> I mean, my daughters scream with laughter at the idea of me being the king of bling. I think it's rather like calling, you know, Wurzel Gummich a, fa- a fashionista. I, I, really not a, the king of bling or even, even, even the sort of vague earl of bling. No, I think it was, it was just, a, you know, a, a useful nickname the sort of thought was, was was that having come from a from a fairly privileged background, that I, I started off life as rich anyway, and 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 you know heir to several estates and things. Unfortunately, I was, I was heir to four pairs of shoes and a pair of cufflinks, so that didn't really help. But it, funnily enough, it it never it never left me. I mean, it was no stage even in the sort of first ten years of my own business when I never had a penny. When you know I was sort of terrified of any brown envelope coming through the letterbox did anybody take me for anything other than than somebody with, with hidden resources of some enormous size so it, it, it was a, but to be honest it was as much a as hindrance as a help because it, it, it sort of gave one some sort of credit that one didn't really you know deserve your jewelry obviously the influences are manifold and the some of the creations that you produce are extremely intricate, fantastical. There are obviously lots of ideas from legend and all of that sort of thing woven into to your work. I mean, how, can you identify a common thread or some reason that you you have the aesthetic, the style that, that you do? Well, I think, fun enough, the fact that I couldn't decide what to do with my life was because of too many influences in my mind rather than too few. And it never occurred to me that people who couldn't decide what they wanted to do with life were unable to discover anything that they wanted to do. Really, in my case, it was because of, you know, 5,000 things I wanted to do, all jabbering in my brain. Somebody once described my brain like the back room of an antique store in Brighton. And I've never actually seen what goes on in the back room, but but I, I, I can see what they mean. I literally had so many ideas all the time and still have so many ideas that bizarrely what I do probably suits my brain better than, than lots of other things and whether it, that that's you know kismet I don't know but there was certainly a Damascene moment 
you know, when I saw how jewellery was made and, and all the different things that it could sort of contain within it, because I saw, you know, uh, funeral jewellery, I saw wedding jewellery, I saw Saxon jewellery, Egyptian jewellery, what Fabergé, all those different things. And they, they, they could be as simple and visual and aesthetic as one liked, or as complex and, and over-the-top and theatrical. And there seemed to be a, a sort of spectrum that was so broad, you know, contained under the general heading of jewellery and indeed of silver, that I don't think there was anything else that, you know, had that sort of, that sort of stretch. I can't think set designing or whatever. I, I can't think of anything, even though it seems such a small and contained field. It really isn't. And the more I discovered what could be done and how you could do it, the more infuriatingly kind of demanding my brain became. Is there one piece or a handful of pieces that stick in your memory most? I'm a great believer in, in sentiment, not just with jewellery and, and, and silver, but, but with everything. And I think there are things that have a huge amount of emotional heft for us that, that don't necessarily have any other reason that, than you know, what they contain around them or the life that was going on at the time. And we all have songs that aren't the greatest song in the world. I mean, Desdine and Dis is by no means anyone's choice of eight best songs that were ever written or bits of music that were ever written. It's the things that have the most sort of, I suppose, emotional heft for them. So in that way, there are things that perhaps my father bought for my mother that have enormous heft, though I didn't have anything to do with making them. But I think things I've made for my wife and my daughters obviously I spent a different type of time on that and one or two things I see on other people's fingers you know a long time on that produce a little tear perhaps <laughs> but still to this day if I see somebody on a beach wearing a piece of my jewelry or in a raid wearing a piece of my jewelry I do have to be held back from going up and congratulating them I still find an unbelievable buzz even if they bought it 30 years before and say I never really liked it anyway. I still find it exciting. I mean, over the years, the clientele you've amassed has been very, very impressive. I mean, there are celebrity names like Lady Gaga, Elton John, Ronnie Wood, the, the Delavines and so forth. And a lot of the jewellery that you make is bespoke and therefore expensive. It takes a lot of craftsmanship, a lot of time to create it, and obviously materials too. I wonder whether the the wants and demands and tastes of your wealthy clients, particularly the bespoke jewellery clients, has evolved much over the years? Well, I think tastes have anyway. And I think on the, the, the subject of sort of celebrity clientele, obviously the vast majority of my clients are people you've never heard of, but they make very bad copy. <laughs> but the good ones have been incredibly faithful and loyal. And in the years before... I suppose, celebrity endorsement, they did word of mouth endorse my work and were incredibly kind in bringing people in. I mean, literally dragging them to, well, so dragging, obviously they were thrilled, but getting them to the door and then letting me have my way with them, as it were. I think the biggest change has been, apart from the, from the, the change of taste and the size of things and the colours of gold and things that, that happen by some sort of fashion osmosis, I'm never quite sure how that does happen, but really have been that they've become more confident and therefore more emboldened and have learnt more about the processes and therefore what can be done. And I think one of the things about craftsmanship of any sort or craftspersonship of any sort 
is that the craftsperson needs to be an educator, needs to be a teacher of what the skills are that the person is employing, what is possible, so that the person can become a sort of buff, as it were. And I think some trades and some, some facets of life have been very good at doing that. The wine trade did it incredibly well. It started to make people wine buffs. It started to make them interested in where wine came from and how it was made and where the grapes, all that sort of stuff. So that I know 25 years ago, you know, all but the most sophisticated people I knew, and I didn't know that many, would just go down depending on how keen they were and the person they were having dinner with, is how far down the, the wine list you went. In my case, at the very bottom, or to you know, somebody they were very keen on, to the top. That's all they knew. They certainly didn't know. With it. But they did a wonderful job, the wine trade, especially when it was challenged. And I think that was the main thing of getting people interested. I think you know, cigars did that. I think to a certain extent, tailoring did that. I think certainly the art market did that. It made everybody a sort of art snob and, and whatever. But the jewellery market sort of split into two ways and the jewellery world split into two ways. One was the great branding world of the of the sort of late 70s and early 80s and the other was craftsmanship and i suppose there was a sort of third which was the almost an investment you know big stones being an investment whatever and and what that did really did more damage to craftsmanship and the world of craftspeople anything had before so the people who had named themselves after great craftsmen and we all know those names i i, I don't need to say tiffany or anything of that sort. But those sort of people who had named themselves after these amazing people just used the name of those great craftsmen to beget a business that really had at its base the idea of making things in as great a quantity as possible for as little as possible and selling them for as much as possible. The very antithesis of craftsmanship and design and originality. So that, in, in, in my time, was the thing that really split things in two. I was always absolutely obsessed with the idea of craftsmanship and, and things being made in a, in a really wonderful way. And, you know, came from a world in which to have the name of the piece actually stamped on the outside of it seemed to be incredibly crass. But, you know, 25 years later, I think that's now turning full circle, but 25 years of, of astonishing growth amongst, you know, all those people. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. At the moment, in a lot of the work that we do, it's plain to see that in Western countries, at least, there's a bit of a backlash, some antipathy towards wealthy people in general. And jewellery, to be very simplistic and reductive, is a display of, of wealth in some regard. Do you feel the effects of that? Do you think about the effects of that kind of societal shift or, or feeling on your work or on your clients or anything like that? Yes, I mean, I think I always have. I've, I've never been a fan of the sort of spectacular show of power or money. And I think, you know, that that's the, the types of jewellery that make you go, ooh, as it were, are either obviously so expensive that they are given as a sort of transaction, essentially, from one person to another, or they are a badge of, of power, a crown, scepter, huge great ring, and rather like a sort of really expensive firework display, the question everybody asks afterwards is, how much did that cost, rather than how beautiful was that? I think at the other end, that the jury that has that same effect on people is jury that we all see without really understanding it in the British Museum or in... You know, a museum and occasionally in a sort of craft window where you look at it and you go, how did they make that? And indeed, I wonder who had that made for who and whatever. So although it is very much a, a, a sort of symbol of wealth, as we think of it now, most jewellery that, that most people would have something to do with never was intended that way. Uh, it was always had much more emotion to it. And, and, and so if you take the crown jewels as, as you know, a sign of, of, of wealth and power, then all the sort of jewellery that pertains to that, worn by, you know, oligarchs or billionaires or whatever it is, and their wives and mistresses and, and friends, and by me if they gave it to me, to be honest, is in that sort of heading. All the other stuff that we love that are a little ring that was made for somebody in 1850 that says Doris inside or the little brooch that was made with lovebirds by somebody. All that stuff is what I'm interested in. Yeah, you know, I've always made jewellery for people who are really keen on, on that, e- even on the, the things that were, in our case, relatively mass-produced. Mass we might have made five, you know, rather than 50,000. They were made in a way that, that we wanted them to be able to look at the back of it, the side of it, to have things added that had sort of special bits of emotion, dates added, whatever, so that there would be a kind of outpouring of emotion, both when they got it and when they wore it, when they showed it to other people, because the stories were always really important to me. So I think, you know, that the, the result of this sort of rather eclectic education and lifestyle, if you like, of meeting so many people and being so enamoured with so many different forms of, of, of art and, and uh, so many other skills or whatever has been that the jury becomes very eclectic and that, that I like the idea of stories. I like the idea of people owning them forever, not, you know, just because of fashion. And I want to talk a little bit about the business. As I mentioned earlier, you've recent, recently taken a uh, controlling stake in it after not having that, I think, for probably about 40 years or perhaps some, somewhere in that region. According to the Daily Mail, you've been helplessly watching it pass through investors' hands for 40 years. I suspect, I suspect you wouldn't quite put it that way, but it has been around the houses a bit, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, not far from that. I mean, I think, you know, that the, 
One always asks, how on earth did the Beatles give away? I'm mean, not that I'm equating myself with the Beatles, <laughs> although the fifth Beatle would have been perfect. How do those sort of people give away, you know, their, their rights? How do they only get a penny a, uh, a single or whatever it was? The answer is, nobody knew any better. I really didn't. No one did. And, and of course, you trust people, and one assumed that the person that was on was in business with was was reliable, and it would all be fair and whatever. It never occurred to me that that when push came to shove, as it did, you know, sort of when things were at their zenith and we really could have done something absolutely grand, that, that a moment would come when I was informed that I didn't actually own my own name and nor could I. And to be honest, uh, I have no one to blame but myself because there are nasty people in the world and one should understand that. It was just unfortunate. But having done that, of course, it meant that, that I was never in a position to just get it back. And, and various people, I think one saw the sort of strange machinations of business people, as it were, in that there is an extraordinary, I think, general assumption amongst the suits, as it were, that creatives are innately idiotic and unable to do business. And in many cases, that is true, and probably in my case, but it's not, it's not always the case. And the one thing that they don't tend to do is listen to what they have to say about what they're making. Because what they're making, if it's doing well, is doing well for a reason. And a reason that's normally so amorphous that it's impossible to put your finger on it. And of all the people to put their finger on it, the suits are the worst, because they'll try and, and formulate it and, and find out how it works. But of course, they won't. So the one thing that I believe that, that's absolutely imperative when creatives and, if you like, financial or more pragmatic people come together is, is they give each other credit for their own skills. What tends to happen is there's an innate jealousy amongst the suits for the lifestyle, if you like, and, and, and the fun that the creative seems to be having and, and indeed with the sort of respect that the creative gets. And that always tends to colour their idea of, of how kind they're going to be to the creative. So the, the amount of gold egg laying gooses that are slaughtered every year by finance and by the city are immense without them even realizing and it's an, it's a strange thing and i think it's because people who go into finance and in, into what one could call collectively the city but worldwide probably don't take enough time to cultivate themselves and learn about something creative they become over pragmatic and perhaps a little soulless but equally, I think creatives don't spend enough time learning the facts of life and certainly the facts of business life so that at least they can understand what it is. So there can be these terrible moments when the creative and the pragmatic suits, as it were, come together where they're determined not to understand each other, where it just becomes non pass and the whole thing becomes ludicrous. And so one thing I do try and do now is... To when I, I sort of lecture to a lot of incredibly bored students all over the place. And what I do is to try and not just teach them about the, you know, the exciting, the creative side, but to at least learn enough life skills to allow them to, you know, get to first base and second base without it collapsing early on, because, you know, that antipathy is not worthwhile. And I suppose you're teaching them things that you wish you yourself had, had known earlier in the journey. What are some of those things? Yes, I am. And, and I'm in the perfect place to do it because I've made 
pretty much all those mistakes. I think things have changed to a large extent in that the, the internet has given people the ability to learn things, look things up, talk to people, see what other people are doing, and indeed spread the word of what they're doing. But I think the, the, the things that I would say is, first of all, never under any circumstances sell your name. Never. doesn't matter who you are. Unless you're prepared to take the money you're offered to do it, and it needs to be a substantial amount, and leave there and then and live on it for the rest of your life and do something else. Because I don't think anybody I know who's done that hasn't regretted it at some stage. It's, it's a very, very strange thing. It's, you know, it's, it's like I'm told losing a leg is, you know, it still itches years after. And of course, people doing terrible things under your name for anybody using vaguely creative is, is, is appalling. So that's number one. The second thing really is to learn the very rudiments of business, just, you know, double entry bookkeeping, profit and loss, cash flow, how you cost something. Because, you know, most of the, you know, the young people I deal with have no idea how to cost a piece. They have no idea just how much trouble they're getting into unless they can, unless they ask for some sort of deposit, etc. They're just assume that the gap between leaving art school or leaving college as it is now and being a well-known name in the high street is just a primrose path, uh, as indeed did I. But anything I can do to, to, you know, cut down a few nettles here and there to make the path easier is what I think they deserve. And when you were looking on from... The, perhaps not the sidelines, but uh, not being in control of your business and seeing people do things with it that you didn't necessarily approve of. In your view, what were the most serious mistakes that were made, the things that you disliked the most? Well, I think that there was an assumption in any, what are now called luxury goods business. And of course, they're the absolute reverse of luxury goods because, as I said earlier, luxury goods is something that that, that are normally made in ones or twos or, or events in your life that happen very rarely, that they have a uniqueness to them. They're made as with as much tender, loving care and skill as they possibly can be. In fact, overtly so, I mean, and more so than they would ever need and or should need. And so that they are an absolute perfection in their own kind of uniqueness. And that the very antithesis of a hundred of the same things or a thousand or a million of the same things made and sold all over the world. So part of the what should be the luxury market is knowing that the thing that you're wearing is yours and yours alone, that it has little secrets to it that are absolutely yours, like a great suit. You know, you know where the pockets are, where you want to have the pockets that it fits perfectly and won't fit anybody else. And to me, that's one of the great, great luxuries in life. But very cleverly, when they decided the idea of branding came along, which is really in the the 70s, it's a very, very recent thing, 70s, early 80s, that just by having the name, you could pretend that the piece that had the name on it was exactly that, when it quite patently wasn't, because people would meet in a bar and, to my amazement, show each other the identical watch or the identical necklace and, and sort of celebrate the fact. And I would have thought, you know, not long before that, if two women had appeared at a party wearing the same dress, they'd be livid. So it seemed an incredibly clever piece of engineering, you know, both of of marketing and social engineering, that they managed to do this and that that, that it was part of being the sort of person who would understand the luxury market by buying the right things. What it did was take away any 
educational process or any learning or trial and error of how you got to be the sort of person that had the perfect suit made. And I think that would be a person who had one suit made a year or every five years, but it was absolutely perfect, or one piece of jewellery made for them that was absolutely perfect, they were prepared to wait for, and you could indulge every kind of bit of craftsmanship and whatever in, rather than this strange thing. So what I saw mainly when it was no longer under my aegis in any way was this terrible kind of vulgarization of taking one or two of the ideas and trying to make thousands of them but still representing those as being from the same, if you like, place as the one-offs. And the fact that they were cutting corners and, and you know, not making things as well as they should, not having the respect for craftsmanship, not having any kind of taste. I think, you know, it was, it was the stylistic as much as anything, the idea of, of, of you know, this, this terrible vulgarization that, that, that everything became smacked of of chrome rather than than silver. And the company was uh, listed on AIM between 97 and 2013. Mm. It went into administration in 2017, and most recently it's been in the hands of a private equity firm that's mm-hmm. something of a turnaround specialist. I think you've worked with them quite closely, but you've now, as I've said, mm. bought a controlling stake for an undisclosed fee, unless you'd like to disclose it to us here, of course. Certainly not, but more than a pound. It would be interesting to know your ambition for it now. Sort of, Do you have a vision of what the company will become now it is back under your aegis? Well, I think the vision is exactly what it always was and not what it at times became. I don't think anybody bought into it and I never had really the power or, or the, the, you know, the influence, certainly not the shareholding, to, to, to be as autonomous as I, I would like to be. <laughs> there was nothing really I could do about it. It's the powerlessness that is worse. It's, it's, it's much easier to be beaten up than held back while somebody beats up a child of yours, as it were. And, and that's really what was happening. It was, it was being held back the sidelines while people mucked it about. But I don't think anybody mucked it about with, with, with any malice. I mean, I think, you know, once or twice there was malice, that, but that was always about, you know, envy or jealousy or the, the, the things we talked about before, these strange kind of emotions that you would have thought that, that businessmen were too pragmatic to have, but of course they're not, in that every businessman wants to be Keith Richards, but he really doesn't want to be a businessman. I was able to watch what was done badly. And I think the two things that have helped enormously are that in many respects, life has come full circle. You were talking about you know, the resistance now to the, that sort of the glitziness and the vulgarity of, of, of wearing things that are incredibly expensive, whatever. But I think conversely, there's been a return to a sort of respect for craftsmanship and doing things really well. And I think you know, if a cheese that's made from Himalayan llama milk and takes you know, five weeks for one person to make and a pat this big is £100... I think although it's very expensive, nobody really minds because the journey and what's gone into it would seem to be worth paying for. You know, human endeavour and human skill is worth paying for, whereas, you know, advertising and marketing probably isn't. So I think in a way people have been forced to see through the the kind of, of shallowness of of marketed brands and those things and they're looking for other options so I think where I've come back in which is where I started has been you know wonderful for the boys and girls in the workshop you know where 
fully em employed. They're working very hard. Uh, we have no aspirations to go global. We have no aspirations to go into hundreds of stores and all those sort of things, which were the aspirations of others. I'm not saying for a moment that I wasn't tempted by vast amounts of money and running around swimming pools. Sorry, my mind's drifting. Um, but anyway, the, the, it, it was, you know, in a way, it's very attractive, but it, it couldn't be done without enormous amounts of skill and money. It's the only way it works. You know? Or somebody in, in the existing position of being able to do it, i.e. being bought out by a huge person that can then do it for you, or somebody who's prepared to have the, the, the depth of their pockets tested by how much it really does cost to continue to back a brand and back a brand until it comes off. And we were never really that sort of, of, of company. So we're back where we started, but in a much better place in that I own the company. And Endless, who were the last venture capitalists, as it were, to put money in, were an absolute example of what it should all be about. They were absolutely terrific. From the moment they took it over... And with the responsibility that they shared with me, it was their intention to get it back into shape for me to take over and obviously uh, to do well out of it. But I think it's the only company that I've come across in, in all that time. And I came across an awful lot, not, only, not always as investors, but you know, as potential investors. And I mean, some of the meetings I had were, quite frankly, I'd have been better off you know, in the craze you know, the blind beggar, more truth would have been taught. And, but they were absolutely terrific. And they were straight as dies, doing what they should have done, what all venture capitalists should do. And they restored, I have to say, my, my faith in the fact that goodness and progress and capitalism can, can actually work. So what they taught me and what I've sort of taught myself over the years and trying to avoid the many mistakes I've made has meant we're in a place now where we can do more of the same. Probably 70% of what we do now is commissioned work, is bespoke work. And we do a lot of, if you like, customised work where we take a piece and customise it for the person, which can be done quicker and all that sort of thing. Taking on new apprentices and, you know, having a, a nice time because it is possible to make lovely things for lovely people with a lovely workshop, and there is such a thing as a virtuous circle. There's no reason there shouldn't be. It, it stands to reason that if you're making something you enjoy making, and you're making it really well, then the people who are doing that have job satisfaction. If the people who are buying it like it and have what I suppose is called product satisfaction, and that generates a profit for whoever, whether it be investors or, or the, the, the company itself, then surely that's the best thing you can hope for any business. Theo Fennell, thank you very much indeed for speaking to us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to World of Wealth, the podcast from Spears magazine with me, Edwin Smith. Our producer was Adrian Bradley. Do subscribe to the show on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have a new episode for you next week. You can get the latest from Spears and subscribe to the magazine at spearswms.com.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.